outdoors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, you'll hear Tommy's interview with Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel, who was covering Elizabeth Warren's big trip to Iowa this weekend. We're also going to talk about all the latest shutdown news, the Democrats' impeachment strategy, and the ability of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to trigger conservatives by doing literally anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> welcome back, guys. This is our first pod of uh, 2019, the three of us. Happy New Woo. Year. Woo. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. January 7th. January 7th. We finally made it. Still shut down. Uh, also, we're going back on tour. We're heading to New Orleans, Charleston, and Durham in early February. Buy some tickets. Come see us. What are you waiting for? Crooked.com slash events. And while you're there, grab some tickets for Love or Leave It. He's going all over the country. Going everywhere. D.C. Chicago. That's it. No, there's a ton of places. <laughs> there's a ton of, the Love It or Leave It tour, all the tickets are on sale now. They starts in D.C., ends in Radio City Music Hall. Oh, my Woo. God. You think you can fill that? Take that, Big Long time Island. guess. <laughs> oh, we're going to fill it. They're going. They're going. Cool. Damn well, I'm right. excited to get back on the road. Yeah. Uh, okay. We are on day 17 of what is now the second longest government shutdown in history. Uh, the longest government shutdown was 21 days in 1995 when Newt Gingrich and the House Republicans shut down the government because Bill Clinton refused to cut Medicare and education, a position on which the vast majority of voters agreed with Clinton, which is why Gingrich eventually backed down. This time, Donald Trump shut down the government because Democrats refused to force taxpayers to fund a metaphorical border wall that Trump promised Mexico would pay for, a position on which the vast majority of voters agree with the Democrats, and yet Trump and the Republican leadership have not budged an inch. No progress was made during the two meetings held over the weekend, and as the shutdown drags on, it's starting to inflict real pain on the millions of people who either work for the federal government or count on government services. Uh, and now we have heard today that Trump will address the nation on Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. Eastern. Guys, let's start with the consequences, the human consequences of the <coughs> shutdown. How bad is this for people, and how much worse can it get? It's pretty bad. I mean, I think that... The it's a partial shutdown, which right. means that the military is still going, Social Security, a lot of major institutions are still going, but the Treasury Department shut down, Department of Agriculture shut down, so people won't get tax returns pretty soon if this keeps going. Yeah. People who need food stamps assistance are going to see uh, cuts, so like this is going to severely hurt people. And, and if you're one of the people who are, are not allowed to go to work because of the shutdown, like you're stressed out, and you're wondering if you're going to get pack pay. And if you're a contractor that's part of the shutdown, you probably won't get any back pay for the time you've been shut down. So, like, there's going to be a human cost. There's going to be an economic cost. Like, this is dragging into serious territory. Yeah, I mean, this Friday will be the first Friday where paychecks don't go out. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people who just can't, uh, cannot um, make ends meet. They just, they're not, 
people are not built to have just one paycheck disappear uh, on a Friday because Donald Trump uh, caught wind of a right wing backlash to the fact that he was going to approve a government spending bill. And so, you know, every day it goes on, it gets worse. You know, there are the there are the ways in which it impacts Americans who want to take advantage of government services uh, in small ways. That's the parks. It's also and, uh, you know, that their uh, TSA is going to be affected. The airline safety is going to be affected. Uh, that one. Scary. I saw that and immediately yeah. thought of John. I took a, took a big note on that one. The people inspecting the planes. Well, so, yeah. So t- a couple <laughs> oh different God. things, a couple <laughs> different things going on with the airlines. TSA agents are calling in sick uh, because they're not getting paid and at all. And so that's causing delays at airports. And they're also, um, they're starting to realize that they can't check now every bag mm-hmm. uh, for security. And so they're uh, they're trying to, you know, figure out what's the most, I mean. The, yeah, we don't want a Band-Aid TSA solution. No shit. Also, the, TSA is a Band-Aid solution. <laughs> also, the airline pilot union said they're worried about a lack of working inspectors and regulators. So the FAA has no idea if your plane is safe. So this is like well beyond travel delays. Yeah, federal aviation inspectors haven't been working and they've been holding signs saying, was your airplane properly repaired and inspected today? The FAA does not know. I that tell is you, fucking terrifying. That that is a, I don't like going to LAX, but man, do I not want to go to LAX? And then when I get there, there's a person holding a sign that says my plane hasn't been inspected. That's not good. Also, this whole fucking debate is supposed to be about security, security at the border, and the fucking airlines now are, you know, there's there's no security there, or there's uh, reduced security there. Um, as you mentioned, Tommy, you know, 19 million households that receive food stamps. Um, they will have less money if this drags into February. They will have no money for food stamps yeah. if it drags into March. 38 million low-income people. 38 million. Sorry. Unbelievable. No, um, no, you were, you were the household number. Oh, the household number, right. Um, and so our national parks are filled with shit, literally. Um, there are also, like, uh, three people died in the national parks because there's no... And by the way, do you remember... This is just a small thing. I don't know if everyone remembers this. When uh, the government was shut down in 2013 mm-hmm. and Obama closed all the national parks and all the Republicans said that that was just a political ploy, yep. that he was closing the national parks just to show, you know, it was a stunt to show how bad this was. No, you fucking close the parks because it's dangerous to have parks open that aren't staffed. That's why you close the fucking national parks in a shutdown. Trump has kept them all open. And so now they're like filled with garbage shit and they're dangerous to people. So that's, that's great. Um, and look, and the other thing with all this is you have people, you know, as these paychecks don't come out, as you have, you know, cuts to food stamps, as there's like people can't get loans, they can't get mortgages, mm-hmm. right? Anything that requires like yeah. government forms like SBA. that. This is going to have a ripple effect throughout the entire economy, right? Like people on food stamps, they can't buy food. People aren't getting their paychecks. That's going to hurt small businesses. That they, I mean, this is this is like serious inflicted damage to the economy. And uh, while all this is happening, Trump said on Friday that the shutdown could last for months, even years. And when asked about all the people who aren't getting paychecks on Sunday, he said, quote, I'm sure that the people that are on the receiving end will make adjustments they always do. Now, I realize that a lot of people think that uh, normal political rules don't apply to Trump. But is it is it tenable for him to tell 800,000 people who aren't getting a paycheck tough shit? No, (laughs) not at all. And uh, and it it gets even more untenable if people don't get their tax refunds, because people also count on that money coming in as well. You know, there's. There's two pieces of this, and I know we'll get to the politics, but there's two pieces of this. One is the fact that he's doing it Mm. and the fact that he's doing it over a symbol, right, which is so despicable. And obviously he doesn't care about the harm that he does. Uh, He cares about how it looks on Fox News. He cares about how it looks to the base. Um, But there's also even just the way he went about it. These Senate Republicans passed a spending bill. Hundred to nothing. It was a— Hundred to nothing. It was a fait accompli. It was just a done kind (laughs) of—it was the usual bad government we were kind of— 
accustomed to. Mm -hmm. Short-term fixes, yeah. getting things over the finish line, late, last minute, nothing fixed, nothing reformed. That's the, that's the new high bar under the Trump administration. But he threw a fit. We're in this because he threw a fit without a plan. And, you know... And Coulter. And Coulter right, got yeah, us into the shutdown. And Coulter got us into a shutdown. But the thing about this is, at least when Newt Gingrich shut the government down, there was a philo philosophy and an ideology and a plan behind a gambit. There's not even There's a nothing. gambit here. There was no, you know, he, he, he can't had, even get his ransom. I will say we've had a history of this, though, that wasn't just Trump. The shutdown in 2013 was Ted Cruz believing that he could shut the entire government down and that somehow by doing that, Obama would just uh, single-handedly repeal his uh, greatest legislative achievement, yeah. achievement and get rid of uh, Affordable Care Act. So, but that's Ted a great Cruz, example. Ted Cruz set the table for this. No, he really did. That's a great example because Ted Cruz is in a lot of ways behaves like a smarter version of Trump. Ted Cruz did that because it was good for Ted Cruz's brand, or at least he thought it would be. And yeah. ultimately, he was right. And because he was just one senator, not the president, he could bring down all the ire and hate of all the people around him. But ultimately, he can't personally keep the government closed indefinitely. But Trump can. The most amazing thing about watching this is now watching all these Republican senators who just voted a couple weeks ago to fund the government and keep it open now say, oh, I can't be. There's no way I'm going to vote for anything unless it's a wall. We must have a wall. It's the most important thing ever. You all just voted to keep the government open without the fucking wall. Now you're acting like it's the most important thing in the world because Ann Coulter uh, is running the government because she led Trump into the shutdown and now yeah. Senate Republicans have to back Trump. So now they're all, they all just follow each other off the cliff. Yeah, uh, Lindsey Graham is doing his, you know, 2019 Lindsey Graham where he just runs out and beats his chest and says whatever Trump wants him to do to defend him. But back in 2013, he was attacking Obama for being a pathetic leader. He said he wasn't engaged enough in negotiations. He said that he kept moving the goalposts. Like, all the things Trump is doing now, he complained about. It's all on the record, Lindsay. You're full of shit. We he know it. very full of shit. Um, so the question now is, how does Trump get out of this? Uh, he said he's considering declaring a national emergency, which he believes would allow him to use the defense budget and our military to build the wall. Uh, the Democratic chairman of the Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, said on Sunday that he thinks the president can do this though other Democrats and legal scholars disagreed, and even Smith said it would open up Trump to a major legal challenge. Guys, how alarming would this be, and what could Democrats do to fight it, if anything? I think we need to start, like, I think we can't even have that conversation, because, it, you know... It does seem to me like the most Trumpian way to get out of this, though. It, I think, though, it's it's also the one of the most Trumpian ways to change a conversation, yeah. right? Like, he's not, in the same way, you know, he announces we're going to withdraw from Syria and then takes it back. He, uh, you know, announces all kinds of things and takes them back just to get the news cycle. You know, we're talking about the fact that he's going to declare a national emergency. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. This tends to be the kind of thing he does with bluster in the hopes to get some kind of a deal. But, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, we are now in this conversation about a national emergency at the border, whether Trump will give a speech to the country, whether or not he'll get his border security money. Uh, and uh, it's it's the debate he wants us to be having. I guess. I, and like, so I, I don't even know. Like, should we now we have to debate whether Trump can can seize land on the southern border and use use the use the military to build a wall? That's the debate we have to have now. I don't know. But but yeah, but you yeah. also have to understand what the reality of what's going on on the ground to understand how absurd this is, too. Like, it's not this fucking wall. Right. It's not a wall. It's never been a wall. There's fencing along the border, along many miles of the border. We've talked about this before. Um, Trump, through Department of Homeland Security and the money they got last year, they are already 
you know, in eminent domain cases, trying to get some land. There, that, that that process has been going on it takes years. From the Bush administration, from the Bush we're administration, still litigating totally. these eminent domain cases. They've been handing out contracts to build more of this fencing. So it's like they're just—he just wants money for some more fencing. He, there's no such thing as yeah. a big wall anymore. He wants money for more fencing that's already being right there. So this idea that then he's going to declare a national emergency to what then? Give out more government contracts, do more eminent domain it cases. It doesn't make sense, right? I don't. I guess my struggle with it because I don't really know what it means. To, to your point, I mean, so they have spent like ten percent of their border security money that was appropriated last year. Yes. So maybe start there if it's an emergency. Right. Uh, when I hear the words national emergency or state of emergency, it makes me think of like uh, Erdogan in Turkey or uh, President Sisi in like in in Egypt, like authoritarians who lock down civil liberties in the name of some security threat. So that scares me, but I don't know if that's the appropriate way to frame this and think about it. But like you said, I mean, I just, if you declare an emergency, you need to act on it immediately. And there's no mechanism to do that, given the nature of how construction works. Uh, right. <laughs> the way the wall would be created. It doesn't the, make any sense. I think, yeah, uh, it, it seems that presidents have too much power anyway. And the fact that you yes. can declare <laughs> a national emergency and have all these powers is terrifying. And, yeah. you know, we should talk about that. It should bother the libertarians in but the Republican Party. in the case of Trump, and in this case, it seems like some of the same shit he was doing right before the midterms when he tried to create another border yes. crisis. And if you're Trump and you're realizing, okay, the Democrats aren't actually going to compromise at all. And the Senate Republicans aren't going to hang on forever, and he's not winning this fight. Um, you know, he can have this big moment where he seems authoritarian and he yeah. declares emergency, and a bunch of DOD people are like, okay, I guess we'll continue to do what we're doing and, like, build some fencing, and then everyone forgets, and then we move on, and then the government goes back over. Right. That's, so you can a, see that. Yeah. That, is, that is That, to me, that is, I think, the most, because, you know, Trump shadow, uh, like a shadow boxing authoritarian. He's like wants to play authoritarian, but then just lacks the discipline. He needs to get to the next episode. And get to the next episode. <laughs> and yeah. This episode's going on too. It's, it's, the episode's going on longer than he thought. Oh, <laughs> for sure. For sure. I do think, like, to your point, this is another moment where we're sort of required to kind of go back to first principles a little bit, which we haven't done in a long time because we have uh, been too comfortable with presidential power. But when we say that a president should have some kind of emergency powers, it has to mean that in a moment in which Congress couldn't have the time to act, the president should do things to defend the country because the Constitution is mm -hmm. not a suicide pact. That is what an emergency is meant to mean. Every president for decades has abused their national security power. They've abused their emergency power. That is true of Obama. That is true of George W. Bush. That is true of Bill Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The one thing I'd also just want to say, too, is like it's also important, I think, to think about what we'd be talking about if Donald Trump hadn't shut the government down. And what we'd be talking about is uh, the probably the Democratic bill uh, to uh, restore, um, you know, to, to, to get money out of politics and restore some Democratic norms. We'd be talking about the investigations into Donald Trump. And to me, like what we've been seeing in the last week, it's, you know, the Trump presidency is a heist. It is a heist. And now we're in the getaway. These next two years are the getaway. And Mueller's on him, and we're on him, and the, and the voters are on him, and you know Democrats are on Everybody's on him. And we're chasing him down the highway, and he's reaching behind him to try to get things to throw out the window. And he grabs Syria, and he throws it out the window. And he grabs Rashida Tlaib, and he throws her out the window. He grabs chunks of a wall, throws her out the window, throws 800,000 federal workers out the window, throws parks out the window, throws whatever he can reach behind him and grab and throw out the window. And our job, and these are big chunks of shit coming at us, but it is still our 
our job to swerve around them and keep focused on the main project. And the main project is preventing this person from putting his agenda in place and getting him the fuck out of office or ideally running him off the fucking road. Was that the end of the French connection that you just described? <laughs> See, I will say, I, I, I used to be in that camp and very alarmed. Oh, distraction this, distraction that. He did the distraction thing in the lead up to 2018 into the into the midterms and I was terrified. I'm like we have to be talking about our stuff blah blah. He's good he's taking up the agenda. This is horrible. Like he's got off the spotlight and then it didn't fucking work and he lost 40 seats. Like I actually I, 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 I do think that these this is the thing that concerns me most about this shutdown is the pain that it's inflicting on people. And Trump is always going to control the media agenda as long as he's president. We're never going to be able to prevent him from doing that. We have to play our game, ha like have our message out there, go out and talk to voters about what we want to talk to voters, introduce those bills like the House Democrats are doing, keep pushing the message. But he's going to he's going to play these games up until the moment he leaves office. Absolutely. And I think it's our job to decide when do we stop the car to get out and help and when do we keep going. I agree. This is a moment where you you don't give in. You don't let him have the issue. You yeah. have to fight because it's so important. Yeah. To me, it's like the, there's the shutdown issue and there's the wall issue. It's clearly not an emergency when the number of people arrested at the border by CBP is below the, nat the decade average. Right. Not an emergency. Um, if he wants to get his wall funding, we should go back to the deal where there's a DACA fix for wall funding. We, like the art, you know, it, it was well negotiated until you blew it up. So it's there. But in terms of the shutdown, I don't think we can let him hold us hostage on all these things. And and the, I mean, the best part of this is they think that being accommodating and sounding reasonable is saying, well, President Trump says we'll go with a metal wall, I'm, not a concrete wall. Like, steel, it's not about steel, building steel materials. Fence. Steel like, fence instead of concrete wall. That's hey, what they're saying. Yeah. How do you like my $5 billion curtains? How about my $5 billion drapes? Like, that's not the also, issue. Also, don't, <laughs> don't treat everyone like fucking idiots. That's, right. that's treating... Uh, Democrats, their voters, literally everyone in America like a fucking moron saying that the yeah. big concession now is that it's going to be a steel fence instead of a concrete wall. Go fuck yourself. It's you all, it's all, yes. Also, just Republicans didn't plan on having this fight. They, they weren't. No. They, it's, but now they're they, in it. Now, they, but it's now it's like the fight they've always wanted to have. I know. It's like and Lindsey it's, Graham, he's been thinking about this for two weeks, I guess. Like, it's like Lindsey Graham shows up on set every day and he's like, is this Law and Order SVU? Is this fucking, is this Friends? What show am I in? I don't give a shit. I'll play whatever character you need me to play. I'll be Ross. I'll be Chris Noth. I'll be fucking, I'll be, I'll be James Gandolfini. I'll be, uh, I don't know. One of the, well, I'll be young Sheldon. What do you need? What do you need me to, who do you need me to be Donald Trump? I'll be whoever you want me to be. I'm Lindsey Graham and I will be whoever you want me to be. Theon or Reek. Yeah. I'll be. Um, let's talk about the democratic strategy here. Uh, Speaker Pelosi said this week, House Democrats will begin passing individual appropriations bills to reopen all government agencies, starting with a bill that covers the Department of Treasury and the IRS. Smart. Over the weekend, Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen suggested that Senate Democrats should block consideration of any bills unrelated to opening the government until McConnell and Senate Republicans allow votes on those individual appropriations bills that Pelosi is going to pass through the House. Um, and then we find out today more and more senators got on board with uh, Van Hollen's ideas, Mark Warner, Tim Kaine, of course, it started with the senators who represent states with the most federal workers, mm -hmm. uh, Maryland and Virginia. And then Schumer said that this is going to be his strategy as well. So this is great news um, that the Democrats are doing this. And it made me think, like, at some point, maybe it's time to put all the pressure not necessarily just on Trump, but on these Senate Republicans, because Trump can be immune to political pressure, political pressure because all he cares about is the 35% of the country that backs him. But a lot of these Senate Republicans, we already saw 
Susan Collins, uh, Corey, Corey Gardner. Gardner, and Tom Tillis, who are all up in 2020, say that McConnell should open the government. So he's starting to lose some of the vulnerable Republicans. And the question is, if we start making this about McConnell and pressuring McConnell and pressuring those Senate Republicans, maybe that's the way to yeah, get McConnell out of wants this. no piece of this. I mean, he's literally not speaking in meetings. He's <laughs> showing up and being silent. You also have Lamar Alexander and Pat Roberts, Roberts who have said they want. Uh, they're not running for re-election, so people think that they might be gettable. Okay. I mean, I, I agree with you that you need to put the pressure on McConnell because structurally this is not set up to succeed, right? Trump's negotiating team is Jared, Mike Pence, and Kirsten Nielsen. So you have a, you have a, a, a dilettante, a supplicant, and a liar. Like, you can't negotiate with those people beca- and for the fact that they're idiots, but also Trump will just upend the negotiation no matter what. Yeah. So I do think, like, this road goes through McConnell. <laughs> a dilettante, a supplicant, and a liar walk into a bar, and they say, Marco Rubio, what are you having? But, yes, also, I really, there was this great moment, like, this is the thing, too, like, the White House negotiating. So, you know, it's not, it, unless Trump is in the room, and Trump is caught in the right mood, none of it matters. Right. I love that they sent Mike Pence in to negotiate, not with members of Congress and senators, but their but, staff. But their staff. So and it's sad. like, it's like, they let, like, I, imagine, coming home, imagine coming home and be like, how was work today? Well, I was in a fucking 10 hour meeting with Mike Pence <laughs> that he started with a prayer and uh, ended with no progress whatsoever. <laughs> and also, the, the only thing Mike Pence succeeded in doing is like, somehow he, like, He's lowering the office of vice president. We're diminishing that role, too. I mean, I don't give a shit. It's who cares. But it's just like you're meeting with staff. Why did you agree to that? It's like they're sending Mike Pence in like he's a toddler on the plastic steering wheel next to next to Trump. Who's really driving like, do, do, do. Look at me. Look at Mike <laughs> Pence. Mike Pence is driving. Did you guys read how Jared apparently said that he was bringing his business acumen oh to the God. negotiations? <laughs> I thought of, I thought of you when I read that. Oh, I <laughs> lost my mind. I thought you would be very angry about that. His um, business acumen? Yes. Well, you know what? He is. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, actually true. So just so everyone knows how this could end. So it, you need 41 Democratic senators to agree to hold up business, right? Because you need 60 votes in the Senate to get anything done. So if we get 41 mm-hmm. Democratic senators to say nothing gets done until we open the government, no business in the Senate happens until then. So that's number one. Um, so how could McConnell get out of this without Trump? Well, he did pass a bill a couple weeks ago, 100 to zero, to keep the government open. So... Trump, McConnell's like, oh, I can't pass anything that Trump won't sign. That's just not true. Yes, you can. Trump can veto the bill. It can go back. This is how the this is how laws work. This is how the government works. I think Mitch would know that. <laughs> right? Like Trump vetoes the bill. It goes back to Congress, and then McConnell and all the Republicans and all the Democrats in the Senate can do what they did a couple weeks ago and override his veto by a hundred to zero. And then it goes back to the House. And yes, Pelosi would need some Republicans to join her because you need two thirds in the House to uh, override the veto. But if a hundred if a bunch of Republican senators just did it, you imagine that a lot of the House Republicans are going to do it, too. And that's how the shutdown could end. You, you could, it could end without Donald Trump. You don't need him. And, Override you know, the fucking veto, guys. And he'll be so angry. He'll be very the, angry. Uh, yeah, it's a, there's, a, there's something that's really interesting that's happened with the veto that is the, fa- the fact that it's, it, it's just got, gone out of use mm-hmm. in, a, in this. It's a, it's a, it's, it is a reflection of the kind of sclerotic... Oddly enough, the fact that there isn't more di- divide between the presidency and the and the and the Congress that ends in veto threats, vetoes, and overridden vetoes is a sign not of things being healthy, but of things being kind of broken. Totally, because a lot of so much of what we see is a kind of kabuki dance 
uh, where everyone's playing games and it's there's cloture votes and fake filibusters and fake veto threats and and everything is hashed out behind closed doors rather than in the open by passing fucking bills and but seeing also, what happens. It's all jammed into a gigantic omnibus rather than piece by piece appropriation, so it makes it almost impossible to veto. I mean, the, the one just funny thing, like the, the, what's hard for Trump here is that there is no case for the wall. His chief of staff. Mick Mulvaney called the wall absurd and almost childish. He said, you go under, you go around, you go through it. <laughs> he said, the fence doesn't solve the problem. Like, everyone knows that the policy here is stupid. So we're just debating the politics. We need to win on the politics. Right. And that does, by the way, make it different than the shutdown that happened, the brief shutdown that happened uh, in 2017, when the Senate Democrats were saying, um, prevent these young immigrants from being deported. Right. Give, provide DACA protections or else if we don't do this, this is our last chance, which is why it's worth shutting the government down over. Because if we don't do this, which is Republicans and Democrats agree on, yep. have both voted for DACA protections, then a bunch of kids are going to get deported, right? Yep. That's like a real thing. We're not even shutting the government down over something fucking real right now. No. It's a metaphorical wall. And, <laughs> and we also just can't give in to a kind of governing where a where in a fit of peak, the president can decide he wants something new, right. something that wasn't discussed, that wasn't part of the negotiation, out of nowhere, and then because the Republican Party is so broken, the Republican senators go along and we're supposed to pretend it didn't happen? Yeah. I mean, so much of what we see every single day is a bunch of people pre 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 uh, pretending Trump isn't Trump. And you know, you see what happens when a, you know, a, a, a congressman says motherfucker or somebody wants to talk about civility that we know Republicans and pundits are going to pretend Trump didn't happen. They are pretending Trump isn't happening in real time. Like, are, what are we all fucking kidding ourselves? Well, like Lindsey Graham is going to pretend that this is on Democrats. He, these guys he, are going to these are going to actually have the audacity to pretend we don't all know what's going on. He unfollowed Ann Coulter on Twitter and then he shut down the government. We're in. <laughs> we know why it happened. We are in the final stages of there will be blood. There is a there is a <laughs> there is a there is a, there is a fucking. Season. Asshole wandering around a mansion, brooding and shooting his gun off at, at furniture, and we're all pretending he's the president. Spoiler. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. 
get it off your chest. I mean, just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the new Democratic House. Uh, <laughs> on Thursday night, uh, I saw a tweet from today's podcast, Washington Post, Dave Weigel, that said, new Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib told the crowd at a move-on event in D.C., we're going to impeach the motherfucker. And so I see this tweet, and I think to myself, okay, this is going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. But perhaps, perhaps it will just be a thing on Fox News mm-hmm. and in the conservative world. Or mm-hmm. perhaps it'll be a broader thing, but it'll just be... You know, we're in this we're in Trump world now, so news cycles last two hours and then we move on. And yet here we are, guys. Here we are on Monday, and people are still writing motherfucking takes (laughs) about Rashida Tlaib saying impeach this motherfucker. It's still fucking happening. So I just want to spend like two minutes on how dumb the debate is. Cool. And then I want to actually talk about the substance under the debate, which is how Democrats should talk about impeachment, which is a which is a real issue. Um what what's your take, guys? What's your take on the um, so I also I also saw Dave Weigel's tweet. At which point I did um, I went to a used car dealership uh, and I bought a car in cash, uh, and then uh, I got into it. I threw my phone away, uh, th- took the battery out, threw it away. I got in my car uh, and I just drove until uh, the road ended, um, <laughs> and then I got out and I walked until the trees stopped. Uh, and then I sat quietly until this very moment. <laughs> and I, I prayed before the altar of both sides. Like, if you don't like the word, as listeners of the show know, we don't mind the word fuck, so we right. say it a lot. If that word bothers you, that's fine. I think Nancy Pelosi doesn't swear a lot. I think she has a swear jar in her office. Like, she doesn't like it. That's cool. Totally. It's old school. But, like, give me a break that impeachment is a big deal. I mean, Brad Sherman, a congressman, is reintroducing articles of impeachment into Congress. Beto O'Rourke has come out in favor and said impeachment is appropriate during his campaign. And then, like, just to step back, like, this is some unprecedented big deal. Republicans started talking about impeaching Obama in 2010. Uh, Daryl Issa, remember Joe Sestak when we, like, I guess offered him a job to not run in some primary? Daryl Issa said that was, could be impeachable. And this is my favorite one. In 2016, the Oklahoma legislature filed a measure asking their House representatives in Washington to impeach Obama, the Attorney General, the Secretary of Education, and anyone else involved in the decision to allow transgender students to use whatever bathroom they wanted. So that's how seriously this it, issue has been taken in the past. Yeah, and it's like, look, I, I, I'm, I'm with you, Tommy. If profanity offends you, fine. That's, that's, that's a legitimate opinion. It doesn't offend us. It offends our parents sometimes when we use it too much. Yeah, um, but I, I get that. If if your position is profanity offends me, whichever party uses it, right? There's of course the hypocrisy of Republicans saying that they're offended by this when Donald Trump is president, mm-hmm. which we, we, of course. Um, but I think what bothers me even more is the political pundit reaction. Well, this is going to help. This is a gift to Donald Trump. This is going to help Donald Trump because so it's like dumb. here's the thing: uh, you have no evidence of that. At all, and in fact, the evidence we have to date suggests that you are wrong. Um, Michelle Wolf's uh, joke 
uh, about Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Remember that? Remember that was going to tip the election? End of the world. D- that did not tip the election. Uh, refusing service at the Red Hand, that was going to help Donald Trump. Did that help? No, it did not. No. Well, it's also... Maxine Waters. Remember Maxine Waters telling people to get in their face? Remember Mitch McConnell getting getting uh, interrupted his dinner at the restaurant? Remember all those things were going to help Donald Trump? But look, Helped him to a 40-seat loss on the House. It's, it's yeah, I mean, look. We, Stop we, fucking... We, nobody knows anything. Here's the thing, though. Like, that's actually... But what you're... Like, no, no one knows what helps and what hurts. But we do know is that actually the only way we now digest politics, like, there's the only way uh, someone saying the word motherfucker could hurt Democrats is that there are going to be columnists who write pieces called "This Will Hurt Democrats," <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it's this it's this like Ouroboros yes. of uh, of punditry and horse race politics. The one thing I would say about this is uh, uh, we are talking about this today because Rashida Tlaib is a Muslim woman, and they want to target her. This would if this was Joe Crowley, right? Or it's like I don't think we. Or still like be you, talking I mean, about you it. just mentioned it the day before, Brad Sherman, a member of Congress. Mm-hmm. Introduce articles of impeachment, which I'm sure, like, you can make a whole bunch of arguments about that, too, and say, well, geez, it's like Nancy Pelosi's first day, mm-hmm. new Congress, they're trying to introduce a sweeping anti-corruption bill, that's the message, and, you know, Brad Sherman takes them all off message with this article of impeachment. That, but no one really, there was only a couple no. stories about Brad Sherman, and Rashida Tlaib, by the way, that day, the day that she made the comments, wrote a an op-ed in the Detroit Free Press laying out a very thorough and substantive case for Donald Trump's impeachment, which, by the way, we should talk about this, is a, is a case that you should be able to make. If any, everyone hasn't read it yet, uh, David Lennart in the New York Times yeah, wrote good. a very long piece about um, why Donald Trump should be impeached over the weekend. And I think we should start taking that seriously. Yeah. Also, the, the, there's also this um, this false comparison that says, oh, you know, you, you're going to you're going to defeat Donald Trump by becoming like him. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, all right. You know what? Actually, saying impeach the motherfucker isn't actually the, a lot like Don, Donald no. Trump. It's not like it just it does use a bad word. And Trump does sometimes use a bad word. And if that's your level of nuance, fine. But but no, but there is something there's a reason I think we've seen some Democratic politicians start using vulgarity. And we've seen it a few times here and there. And it actually does relate back to Trump. But it's it's a deeper problem, which is people are so mistrustful and so frustrated that that one thing that you one of the hardest things for any politician to figure out how to do especially even especially democratic politicians is to convince people that that they're real that mm-hmm. they care that that they're that they're going to actually do what they say they're going to do that they care about the same things that you care about because for so long people have felt like their leaders don't do that it's why i think kamala harris came on our podcast and said the said fuck. It's why uh, we bullied Eric Garcetti into cursing on the show. <laughs> uh, there is a feeling that Democratic politicians don't speak for Democratic voters. It's, I think, part of why AOC appeals so much. And so, you know, I like, you know, I don't know what the value is of cursing. I don't know what the harm it does or the good it does. But I do think it speaks to a problem, which is Democrats are right now trying to figure out a language to say, I get it the way you get it. I feel the way you feel. And and because Democratic policies haven't reflected that for a long time, and there have been a lot of uh, Democratic successes of late because Republicans have controlled the government, people are looking for a way to get through to people. That's all. I think it's a, it's a bigger issue with some House Democrats, though, because a lot of House Democrats were like, privately complaining about this. I think it goes beyond the um, profanity, right? It is, they are very concerned that some Democrats and and activists will uh, treat impeachment too flippantly, right? Like it's easy. And of course, it should, impeachment is something that should not be treated lightly, right? I mean, I do not think 
you shouldn't be able to impeach a president because you disagree with that president's policy, of right? Like not. that. And, I mean, well, you know, Tom Steyer's campaign at the beginning was like, we should impeach him because he had this policy, you know? And it's like, Republic, I don't agree with that. Republicans made that argument about Obama too. Right. And you just, so, but like, and you know, Lennart in his piece and, and Rashida Tlaib in her piece as well, lay out real reasons why Donald Trump uh, deserves to be impeached. And uh, Leonard's case, he said, you know, he's the use of presidency for personal enrichment, violations of campaign finance law, obstruction of justice, and subversion of democracy. He lays out four different areas. And there's a, a, almost an airtight case in all four of those areas. And again, we've talked about this before, too. I don't quite know why Democrats are so nervous about this. Like, I get that they want to build a careful case. I get that they want to wait until Mueller's finished. That's totally fine. But I do think it is time to start laying the groundwork in public opinion that this man has committed offenses that may be impeachable. And again, starting impeachment proceedings is not uh, guaranteeing a final verdict. It's just no. saying an impe- you have a hearing in the House. Let's lay out all the ways that Donald Trump has used the presidency to enrich himself. Let's talk about the obstruction case. Let's talk about the fact that he's been implicated in multiple campaign felonies by federal prosecutors. Like, let's start talking about all that stuff. And then if the Senate, you know, votes to acquit him, they vote to acquit him. But clearly he has reached the point where he has committed offenses that may be impeachable. Yeah. I mean, so there's we're constantly combining these two things. Like, yeah, Donald Trump should be impeached and removed from office as as soon as humanly fucking possible. He is a criminal, unfit, moron, racist uh, thief. Like, get get him out, of course. (laughs) The question, I think, for all of us is how do we make that politically possible? And I think, you know, (laughs) op-eds will help. Making the argument will help. This is – our goal here is – we need to remove Donald Trump one way or the other. We need to get him out of office. Impeachment is one of the ways we can do that. Resignation is another. Building a powerful case for his removal ach- achieves both ends. And so, you know, when do we do it? How do we do it? Get to the point where impeachment is politically possible. Every day should be about making that case. All right, let's talk about another freshman congresswoman who's triggered the cons. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. On the week she was sworn in, there were uproars over everything from a video of her dancing in college to the nickname she used to what was thankfully a more substantive controversy over her 60 Minutes interview. Um, But before we get to that, why do you guys think she is driving conservatives so completely insane in a way that we haven't seen a Democratic politician do in quite a while? It's a really great question. Uh, I think, um, I think she's a woman. Mm. I think she's a woman of color. I think she's beautiful, and I think that uh, uh, turns their knobs in a way that they they hate. Uh, I also think she is managing to make uh, very liberal policies uh, simple, pal- uh, palatable, sensible, uh, and that's also quite frustrating. Um, and uh, she's not asking permission. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's like she. The biggest one for me is she talks like a normal human being and she calls out the bullshit, right? Yeah. She's just she, she, which she does not talk like she was born and raised in the uh, Russell Senate, the Senate Russell no. Building. The opposite, <laughs> like she, you know, she's this like political Rorschach test where you know people can watch the same thing, and, but people Republicans watch her dancing and think somehow that that's bad. We watch that and we're like, oh, a young, cool, fun person dancing. Uh, to a scene in a movie I really like. That's fu- it's like it's like the Laurel Yanny of fucking politics, the dumbest thing ever. But they're they're elevating her, they're helping her, and I think they're attacking her because she is uh, a woman and is young and is exciting and has seized the microphone and is is pushing a progressive message. And so they see her as a threat. Like I really think it's that simple. It's the other thing that they have a blind spot in the conservative movement. Clearly, 
Um, they did have this blind spot, which is one of the reasons that Donald Trump was elected president, to populist economics. She is a very, specifically, because she, she can talk about progressive ideas very well, but specifically when she talks about populist economics and progressive economics, she does so in a way that conservatives somehow think what she's saying isn't popular because they don't understand right. that most of the country is so fucking fed up with inequality and rich people just getting away with murder, yeah, and <laughs> you know, and she, and she talks about it, and so they say things, and we, you know, we'll we'll get to what she said. So in her interview with Anderson Cooper, she answered a question about how you pay for the Green New Deal and floated a top tax rate of seventy percent for people making over ten million dollars, which means that every dollar you make over ten million gets taxed at seventy percent. And this led conservatives to go crazy. Grover Norquist called it slavery. It was all over Fox stuff like that. But it's like. Do you really? How many people in this country? First of all, how many people in this country do you think make over ten thousand, uh, ten million dollars? Uh, about 0.05 percent. Yeah, not a lot. Like, if you asked a bunch of people, do you think once you hit ten million dollars, if every dollar over that was taxed seventy percent, do you really think that's a problem? Also, the top marginal tax rate peaked in in 1944. It was 94 percent, and it never dipped below 70 percent in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So this isn't some radical, crazy idea. It's sort of returning us to a historically sensible well, it, it's re, it's returning us to a uh, historical tax rate and it's not just AOC that has floated this idea like Peter Diamond who won the uh, uh, Nobel Prize for economics thinks the top rate should be 73 percent Christy Romer who we all worked with at the White House thinks it should be 80 percent so a lot of people think that like the best tax rate for the richest people on the planet is as high as you can make it uh, as long as they'll continue to work and put more revenue into the system like Okay. Yeah. yeah, I also think the, the, the dancing video ties back to the response to that 70% line. Um, you know, I actually think there were plenty of Republicans who were like, why are you – like I saw – you know, I think that the inside of like the, the base sort of whatever roiling right-wing conversation, they were like, you're making her look good. This is a good video. Yeah, why would you do most, that? most Republicans got that it was a stupid but, attack. But, but there's a subset that don't because they're so viscerally – uh, uh, angry about her just existing and having a platform and speaking. And it goes to what happens mm -hmm. whenever she says something, which is, uh, you know, the, it's such, there's a, there's this in like very sexist attack that often follows, which is, oh, she thinks the tax rate should be 70% because she doesn't know what she's talking about. She never can know what she's yep. talking about. It's not that she's wrong. It's not that it's just, that she's a radical. It's not that she's a leftist. It's not that she's socialist or communist. She's just a ditz, right? That's, that's, that's the only explanation yeah. for why someone would disagree with you. And they look for every weakness, every hole in what she says. And meanwhile, she's advocating, uh, what are economically defensible, uh, uh, positions that she's helping to move into the mainstream while people like Paul Ryan said that the, you know, if Paul Ryan was a 28 year old woman saying that the tax cuts would pay for themselves. Yeah, no I, do I do not believe that Republicans would be saying that she doesn't know what she's talking about. Yeah. He was treated as a very serious he policy was. wonk. And like, there's the, you're right. There's two kinds of reactions. There's the crazy right winger reaction, which is just nuts about everything. But also I thought the 60 minutes interview with Anderson Cooper was borderline condescending, right? Like he kept asking her these really skeptical questions about the Green New Deal and how impossible it was. He never mentioned the fact that the UN climate report says we have like 12 years to avoid the whole planet burning to the ground. Yeah. Uh, at one point he said to her, do you believe Trump is a racist? She's like, fuck yeah. And he's like, how can you say that? What, have you not been watching the last four <laughs> that years? Was, how like, can you say that is one of the craziest things Anderson Cooper has ever said? Paul he is so Ryan. much better than that fucking question. Anderson, where were you during Charlottesville? Were you 
were you on another planet? Yeah. Were you watching the news during Come that on, time? Come on, back to Earth, man. But you're right, love. The whole tone is Better like than you, that. you don't get it. You don't get the game of politics. You don't get how politics is played. Hey guys, the game got upended two years ago. You don't either. Like she has grabbed the mic and is like made this enormous profile for herself. Get used to it. Well, that's the, that to me is what a, what I think is, I think really impressive, which is, you know, <laughs> she had this long shot campaign because she surprised everybody or a lot of people by defeating an incumbent in a primary, uh, by being so unabashed and advocating for these uh, left positions, and because she is so charismatic and young and a woman of color, she has garnered uh, attention, good and bad. And she has decided to take that platform and do good with it. Mm -hmm. And that's really impressive and really fucking hard. It is hard to go from being a bartender to being on 60 minutes in the span of a year. Yeah. That would be terrifying. That is terrifying. Totally. It's just, her way of communicating is so effective because I'll, I don't know if you guys saw this. What she did after the 60 minutes interview is on her Instagram stories, she talked to everyone and she's like, I just want to talk to you guys about what that was like and what it's like to do something oh, like that's that. Cool. For those of you who don't know, and she's like, it's very terrifying. They do like hours and hours of interview and then you don't know what they're gonna cut. And you know, I think I did really well, but the thing when you do something like that and you make a mistake, you know, unless it's perfect, you know, you're gonna have people complain. And she's basically, she's like explaining to many people who follow her, who I'm sure are a lot of people who have not paid attention to politics that closely before Trump was elected, this is how politics works, this is how media works. And she's sort of like taking people through her journey along with her, which is a really, it's, she just has a very smart, normal human way of communicating. And it's like, and again, we've said this a million times, but like, that's my advice to all democratic politicians. Now the advice is not watch exactly what she's doing and then do exactly that, right? It's, it's not like make some food. Just cause she's gonna fucking cook and talk doesn't mean you all need to fucking cook and talk too now. Like just do what works for you. You know what I'm saying? Like cause different things will work for each politician. Just be you, right? Also, also one other thing about this too is, um, you know, Republicans have been so much better at this for so long. You know, their their uh, more conservative members introduce an idea, they get the country talking about it, and all mm -hmm. of a sudden the moderate position moves to the left. They, they yeah. you know, they're talking about the Overton window all the time. The you know the acceptable range of debate. Here's somebody showing up and doing what very very few, if not zero, Democrats have done for a long time, which has gone out there and say, here's we're we maybe we'll do something incremental, but here's the goal. Here's the far goal. Here's here's the the bold left position and allow the debate to happen around that because you know what? I've seen conservatives debating a 70% tax rate all day and liberals are debating it and journalists are talking about it and Repu and conservatives are trying to defend their position on it and uh, that's a really good thing because yep. I don't think we're going to get to a 70% tax rate. But you know what's on the table now? Getting it to be a bit higher as a compromise. Yeah, like 50. Yeah. Which is what it was in like 81 when Reagan was president. i tell you, the only problem with what she said is it only raises about $72 billion a year, which is not enough to pay, pay for a Green New Deal or Medicare for All. We're going to have to go, hi not higher necessarily, but it's probably going to have to go broader than $10 million. But Or you're going to have to stop worrying about deficit spending, which is the other. Talk to Stephanie Kelton about that, <laughs> that you uh, you actually don't have to care so much about the deficit and that you don't have to pay for every single fucking proposal. Yeah. The left is pushing on both of those ideas, both higher marginal tax rates, tax rates and the idea that you don't have to pay for every single dollar. That was what the whole pay-go debate was about. And it's good that we're having that debate now. Yeah, it's, it's good. Of course, and you know what else? It's good because we have to have it because so far there's only two things you don't have to pay for, wars and tax cuts for the rich, and that is a terrible fucking way to run a soda stand. Agreed. Cool. Uh, all right. When we come back, we will have Tommy's interview with The Washington Post's Dave Weigel.
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast. A village in India where everyone's name is a song. A boiling river in the Amazon. A spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. On the line is Dave Weigel. He's a reporter at the Washington Post. You might have heard of it. And he writes a fantastic newsletter called The Trailer. Dave, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thank you. I am so glad to have you on because I think that uh, you are one of the best political journalists in the business. And I think that is because you seem to spend as little time in Washington uh, as humanly possible. So I believe you're just back from Iowa, right? Yeah, I got back uh, yesterday afternoon after four of five uh, events Warren was holding. I had colleagues who were there for the entire trip. Uh, I got I got the the gist, although it was interesting to hear her work out the message. And then, you know, this early stage of the campaign, uh, maybe you get hives when you think about it. But for me, it's the time when there's no Secret Service. You're kind of yeah. catching up with staff right after the events and seeing how they think it went. They're kind of things are getting worked around. It's it's like a what I imagine like a table reading is for a script. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, this is like the magical part of a campaign where you actually have access and, and people are... And also, this time, usually when the, the the presidential cycle happens, people are like, oh my God, already? And this time, people just seem pumped. Oh, absolutely. So Warren's venues for this were all overflowing. Uh, as you know, I mean, as you know, the nightmare is we book a uh, thousand seats and mm-hmm. 950 people show up and the camera is trained on the 50 empty seats, right? Yep. Because uh, yep. they're yep. always at the front because people are polite and don't ask questions. Uh, and uh, she filled the event. She talked to around, around 3,000 people showed up at these events and uh, she did some scrums with the media after almost mm-hmm. everything. Uh, she did also, this was important, it doesn't sound important, it sounds like horse race nonsense journalism, but she made sure to take photos and sign books with everyone who wanted to after the events. They baked in time for her to hang around, uh, having covered lots of campaigns at this point. Not everyone does that. I mean, there and no. this was a reason I thought Bernie Sanders ended up losing Iowa. Uh, does it ma- should it matter? That's a very good question. But very early uh, in the in this cam- campaign, or I just want to be a campaign so we can stop to exploratory because this is it's such a time wasting word. Uh, mm-hmm. it, this early in the campaign, no, they've they've got exactly what they wanted. Uh, and it's not as big as the Obama launch uh, in Iowa. I'm not just saying this to pander to you, but on the Thank scale you. of people making their first business, it was pretty big. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. That was my baby. Um, I'm just kidding. So, okay, so you're with Elizabeth Warren. Interesting to me, 
I thought I thought it was interesting that she started her uh, her kickoff in Western Iowa, which is traditionally more Republican. It's generally less important for Democrats in the caucuses because of the way the delegate math works. Most of your delegates are going to come from Des Moines and then the eastern part of the state. Do you know why they did that? And, and how do you think her message was received generally in those in those visits? Well, it's it's not just that, and again, I want to keep saying, as you know, all right, let's let's assume <laughs> <laughs> we both both of us here are in, don't need to uh, Iowa explain to each other, right? But right. yeah, also if you're in Western Iowa, half your crowds are going to be from Nebraska or from yes. South Dakota, and they can vote at some point. But if you're a South Dakotan, you're voting like six months after Iowa does. So uh, yeah, it was. It was interesting, and the sense I got, uh, they, you know, they don't like to talk shop, but the, you, can, you, can get, you can get a feel from talking to the campaign staff. Uh, any Democrat could go to Davenport or Des Moines and get a big crowd. Mm-hmm. Warren got a big crowd in Council Bluffs. Uh, she got a big crowd in Sioux City. These are places that, for, you know, forget, forget Hillary losing them. They, have, they just don't go Democratic. Uh, so Steve she, King's She district. got a ton of, she, she, I think, wanted to demonstrate that for all the coverage about how she's the lefty Bernie progressive move on candidate, that this message is interesting to people who do not fit that stereotype. These are not places that even went very strong for Bernie uh, in 2016. Uh, so I think uh, that came off. Uh, there, there were Republicans in in some of these crowds, um, not a not a lot. I mean, there, but you did not see the kind of hard nosed. Uh, cynicism, people showing up and, and turning away because she they, they, they she didn't answer their you know how do we close off the border with uh, laser beams questions. But it was it was a pretty moderate crowd. Um, it wasn't just lefties who showed up. I mean, frankly, just a lot of a lot of guys in with beards and trucker hats and teamsters who did not love Hillary Clinton when I when I talked to them didn't have like a ton of animus, but were not happy to vote in that election and showed up for her. So mm-hmm. I think that message got across. And of course, she finished in. Des Moines and Ankeny, um, right. but it, it was notable that she did her first three stops in places the Democrats don't tend to win. Yeah, Ankeny being a, a northern suburb Ankeny, of Des Moines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, the, so, the joke during 2016 was that Marco Rubio was the mayor of Ankeny because he would just come to Des Moines, <laughs> go to the suburbs, and then, and then go back home for a fundraiser. Uh, he's the mayor of his own sad little existence now. So <laughs> I, I watched a couple of Warren's events on YouTube because I... Uh, I lead a rich and fulfilling life on the weekends. And the message seemed to be a lot of her bio. And then she really hammered income inequality, corruption. Uh, she talked about influence peddling in Washington. There was not a lot of Trump talk. Was that what the caucus goers wanted to hear? Absolutely. And I think this is lost in D.C. and New York and wherever else you can, you know, yell about a green room. Um, lots of people have green, room, green rooms, <laughs> but those are the, plot, the problem green rooms, are like right, the right, morning right. show ones. Uh, yes. So there's this idea that Democrats want a fighter, and the fact that you know Michael Avenatti showed up to some Iowa events and had the crowd and said we need to fight, that got some attention. But it just uh, that's not really what people want. They assume they want a Democrat who will defeat Trump, and there is a uh, a trauma from 2016 that I think in some ways is useful, some ways is probably paralyzing. Mm-hmm. That. If you are in a fight with a guy every day, it's just it, it's going to backfire. Uh, and frankly, I, I, <laughs> I one of the pieces I wrote, I, I quoted something you'd said. So uh, I noticed that. Okay, good. We'll talk about it. So yeah, <laughs> in 2016, Democrats had a very different theory. Um, and frankly, at the time, there were a lot of Republicans who were embarrassed by Trump, who are, have now gone like the the Lindsey Graham reeducation treatment and are praising him for everything. <laughs> but it was not crazy to think that. Pulling Trump out and exposing him and calling him racist, yada yada. That was um, that 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 was getting him. That was baiting him. That was getting him off message. That was Warren's role in 2016. I mean, she was tweeting, giving speeches, making fun of him. I remember kind of super PAC videos that 
were like cartoons that showed Trump literally like shrinking as she talked about him. Uh, and uh, you know, a quote of you at the time said that was that was a good role for her. And frankly, I think in some ways it was. Um, that is not how people think right now. That is not how she thinks. And yeah. a question that was kind of hard to untangle right now, I think it will be untangled, is whether she is in a worse position to criticize Trump than other people is because she does not want to do that. She does not want every time she goes out, because this was, the, this was her life for a while, every time she goes out, she gives a policy speech, she talks about corruption, and people are like, and then Trump will tweet, crazy Pocahontas is at it again, and she gets asked 50 questions about Pocahontas, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, she only mentioned, literally only mentioned his name, when a voter who want, who, in the tone of the question, wanted her to win, just was worried that about her and Trump baiting, said, you know, why did you take the DNA test? And she said, yes. I can't control uh, when Trump says racial slurs. And in 2016, she tried to control that. I mean, she, that was when she was speaking. Was Trump would say something and she'd tweet at him and we'd write about it. They have a very different theory now, which I think comports with what Iowa Democrats, and we'll see about other Democrats, what they want, which is, okay, we want somebody who is going to answer that voter who took a, ch- a chance on Trump uh, and is being driven crazy by how bad he is at this job. And they do not want to hear that Trump sucks. That is taken for granted. And it's something that mirrors what people ran on in 2018 when she she didn't do a ton of travel uh for democrats in that cycle did a little bit she did help a lot of campaigns and she stayed very close in touch with campaigns and i think heard that message that people were not winning by saying you believe this crazy thing Did you see that snl clip it was mm-hmm. hey this guy said he was gonna fix things he didn't enough about that joke a jokester here's what like i'm going to i'm gonna get in there and expand health care uh that was yeah. her message yeah yeah I, and I know and I watched that question, uh, that Q&A about the DNA test, and it was, it was a vintage Iowa caucus goer question because it was sort of a, a punditry question. Like, why would you give Trump more fodder to attack you? Like a lot of the questions she got were political. And she kept saying, you know, I haven't been in politics my whole life. I'm a policy person. So let me answer that way. It's incredibly disciplined and impressive. And the other thing I'm hearing from activists and friends who are you know, getting recruited for jobs, frankly, is that. She is like calling people, emailing, lots of personal touches, like really, I think, an impressive campaign so far. Uh, yeah, she's very good on those metrics. And also, um, just the, the way she presents herself. So I've, I've seen her in Massachusetts a few times at town halls. I've seen her at big progressive events, right? But I've seen her at town halls where she gets a couple of annoyed questions from people. And uh, the thing I've always said about her, and since she's been in politics, is like she, she did not full of it. She really did not ever think she was going to run for office. Like, mm-hmm. had they just made her chair of the CFPB, she would have been chair of the CFPB. That's it. Um, so she was a communicator and an expert who would have to synthesize ideas for people, but not in a way that would say, and then vote for me. And she did that yeah. for decades, and then she's been a politician for seven years. So yep. the skill set just, there, there's it's it's there's no way to do that without taking decades getting good at something. She has this skill set of, of talking about policy in a way that does not sound like a bunch of advisors came up with it. And she she sometimes um, kind of uh, sets it up. I remember one question she got, which, again, was nobody's headline, was, uh, I just want to thank you for your work on the 2018 bankruptcy bill. And she says, oh, and, and she says, oh, we're going to nerd out now. Great. I mean, that's the way she talks, which is <laughs> yeah, she not her used to. And everyone else who's a good communicator in politics comes out. Uh, you know, voters voters really want authenticity. We always say they do, but more than ever, they think just Trump's going to puncture you, puncture your armor if it looks like you're a stuffed shirt politician. And that was not how she came across. I Man, not everyone who was at these events came away saying I'm I'm all in for her, but um, but you did hear that. I mean, so I was standing a she she. I mentioned the overflows and the big crowds, and I was, I was mm-hmm. standing at one overflow in Des Moines, 
and like right next to people who were having the kind of punditry conversation we were mentioning, just these these nice women who were like, oh, you know, and the the polls, Biden's doing really good. She's only at eight percent. Uh, like they were already communicating about the polling. <laughs> yeah. But then afterwards, uh, she gets done. She's like, oh, she just seems so real, you know. And so like <laughs> Biden also has this um, not to, not to get into like, like I want to go can if I can then, but. That was somebody who was not super sold on anybody, but knew where the vibe was ahead. And then her first impression was, that's a normal person running for president who knows stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that impressed me with her was the way she wove her bio into her vision for the country, which which brings up something interesting you wrote about today, which is the political conventional wisdom is that Senator Warren and Bernie Sanders occupy the same political space. But you wrote that Senator Warren, quote, is not Bernie Sanders. What did you mean by that? Yeah, and actually, I noticed that was the headline of uh, one of the opposition research Republican groups blasted that out to reporters, like, devastating gaffe, I warrant she's not Bernie. No, but uh, <laughs> so Bernie just has a theory of politics uh, that is you have ideas, you build a mass movement, you spread the uh, ideas through giant rallies, and personal lifestyle behavior, you're, you are not important. The message is mm-hmm. important. So he does not talk about himself. I was his as at his kind of his uh, office opening, not office um, uh, celebration of his office for him being sworn in last week. And uh, Linda Sarsour, who's a women's march organizer, uh, remember tell, her telling him, "Bernie, you're so humble, and it pisses me off because he <laughs> he just doesn't talk about himself. Yeah, um, he just he, he just shows up and he's like, um, the the rhythm of Bernie's speech is uh, policy idea, applause, policy idea, applause. Why don't we have this policy, applause? Whereas Warren gets up and just says, "Great to be here. I want to tell you who I am.'" And she mm-hmm. spends about four minutes on her biography, which is one of the things, if you're a reporter, you assume everybody knows it. And they, they really don't. I mean, you, you look no, around the really crowd, don't. and she mentions she's from Oklahoma, and you see some people go like, oh, you know, like not nudging each other. Like, I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Uh, and mentions that she just grew up, she grew up, um, she used to say the ragged edge in the middle class. She doesn't say it anymore, but just tells the story of her family because of medical bills, nearly losing their house, and her mother having to go to work. Uh, and from that says, and that informs everything. So that informs everything mm-hmm. I do. Every time I'm thinking about this, I think of my mother pacing around her house saying, uh, we're not going to lose this house and putting on her dress and going to get a job at Sears. And uh, back then you could, uh, with a minimum wage job, fa- pay for a family like mine, and now you can't, and that's why I'm in this. Uh, and that's the message. And frankly, n- not to dump on Hillary Clinton, but what I came away with, some, you know, again, some, some savvy voters we're saying, you know, boy, Hillary never could explain why she was doing this, and Warren explained it. And I, I thought, you know, cartoon light bulb appeared above my head because uh, that was <laughs> the problem that people kept uh, citing for for Hillary. Uh, another point I'd, I'd make is, is that she also, in her bio, just t- in talking about her work as a senator, it's a combination of here's a bunch of stuff I I beat the uh, banks on, mm-hmm. uh, mainly the CFPB, but also Wells Wells Fargo. Um, Equifax. I mean, she just goes after a couple, yeah. the banks, but not Republicans. And when she talks about Republicans, she talks about individuals that she has dealt with and gotten things passed with. So mm-hmm. it's it's um, it is a message that I think resembles some that have worked before, which is yeah. there are enemies that I've identified. They're not your neighbors. They're not Republicans. They are these people who, are, if left unchecked, are going to screw us all over. Which is not the same as Trump sucks. Yeah. I was impressed. It was a tight 15-minute, 20-minute stump speech that I thought was really compelling. Um, another thing that's been impressive is that she locked down a bunch of talented staff, including uh, a woman named Emily Parcell, who was my colleague for a year when she was Obama's Iowa political director in 2008, and is like the most competent person I've ever worked with. And when I saw 
Emily get hired, because I didn't think Emily was going to do another campaign. I was like, oh, shit, look, that is an impressive team. And for the first time, it really made me think that there is a cost to those waiting to make a decision. Like, are you hearing any more sense of urgency from the Bernie, Kamala, Beto, Biden camps? That's a good question. So Bernie is unique because he does have a team uh, that's ready to go if he says if he blows the whistle again. Uh, mm-hmm. Not the, exactly the same as last time, but he'd be the only guy running who, um, re, you know, has a modern campaign team. And Biden last did this in 2008, 2008 right? Uh, I, I think it has shaken some of the other people's schedules. Um, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to try to break the news when I, when I can about when people yeah, are actually running. Uh, but it was it was the first really smart move because I think not only in terms of hiring staff, uh, did Warren get an advantage? But there are certain narratives that you could see at these events already sunk in with people. Like they were really irritated with how she was already being compared to other women who'd lost stuff and she was being called unlikable. And mm-hmm. I think had Kamala gotten in or Gillibrand gotten in on the th- December 31st, they would have gotten some of the same coverage. Not identical, mm-hmm. but there would have been, you know, anonymous Republicans telling Politico or Axios or, or the Post. Uh, you know, oh, she's just like Hillary. And we would have had the same likable discussion when we were about the Post. I think that helps, and that's kind of an intangible thing that you can't replace with another good staffer. But, uh, no, it was, and it was very revealing to people. I mean, the, the, the very smart, very serious take for the last two months was, oh, Warren missed her moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Warren's had a bad rollout, et cetera, et cetera. But that was not the impression that talented staff came away with, and I think that has changed the way other people are thinking. I mean, there, there really was a... Will Ken Warren even run idea yeah, totally. uh, circulating a few weeks ago? And it is now, oh, how can we scramble to get staff before she does, which is night and day. Yeah. Anyone taking her for granted should watch some of those events from the weekend because they were good. Mm-hmm. Um, last question for you. It has now been three days since Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib said of Trump, we need to impeach the motherfucker. I just want to know, how are you doing? I know that people in D.C. rarely diverge from the King's English, and it's been a tough time uh, for a lot of folks in the Beltway, and I just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> I'm fine. You know, um, journalists, uh, it's very well known that we just break into spontaneous tears whenever someone uses a curse word. Um, it's awful. We, get, we have to go home for the day. Um, we're very... We, we, we'll, what I try to do is I, I go and, and um, say a couple of rosaries uh, <laughs> just to, to purify myself. No, uh, the conversation was idiotic. Uh, <laughs> I'll use so that word. Stupid. Uh, the, the dynamics that are more interesting is that it is true that that Democrats do not want to talk about impeachment all the time. And it's it's mostly, mostly a media thing. They just hate being asked about that instead of literally anything else they're doing. Um, but the the premise that they hated her choice of words, actually, with the, there's like two or three Democrats, like Joe Manchin, who I will point out said he'd beat the hell out of anybody who tried to burn a flag. Uh, mm-hmm. burned, a few Democrats who said they you like the choice of word. The rest were uh, in similar Nancy Pelosi saying, oh, it's a generational thing, I wouldn't have said that word, but whatever. And, and because they know that people in politics talk like this. It's just absurd. It, it's, it's almost like if somebody said this at like a, a locker room, and we were like, whoa, yeah. I can't believe people talk like that. No, we know that. They were a little bit of impeachment, and frankly, the thing that is too thorny to get into is that uh, Talib has already attracted the ire of uh, ire of a lot of people because she's Palestinian American um, who believes in a two state solution and refu- and is ag- at least against banning um, BDS or punishing yep. boycotts of Israel. Uh, is in some some I don't want to speak for her, 
has moved a little bit forward towards boycott, divestment, sanctions, Israel. And okay, that more than a curse word, that is not something Democrats want to talk about everywhere. But what I found is that, uh, like, just as Louis Gohmert can exist, and like Charlie Baker doesn't have to ask about, didn't get asked about him all the time, uh, she will exist. Uh, she is trying to shift the window of debate for her beliefs, and that's okay. Uh, and reporters who are grown-ups and know how to curse should not pretend that we are blown back when somebody uses the F word. Yeah, I mean, look, Brad Sherman, a congressman, plans to reintroduce actual articles uh, of impeachment. I believe he introduced them in 2017 with a couple others. So I'm not sure why we're so worked up about this. Uh, Beto O'Rourke talked about impeachment during his Senate campaign. But like, I, I, you know, what I like about your reporting is you wrote up about how, you know, how stupid this is, basically. But it did launch a million pearl-clutching takes where we act like civility is now dead. It's like, I just wonder, how does the the media establishment sort of go forward with that kind of nonsense in the era of Trump? Like, don't people see how stupid it is? Uh, in, de- in defense of people, like, if I had to, if you polygraph people, I think there are some who resented that they had to chase around to leave. But the, the desk needed it. Uh, not to get too too in the in the weeds, but yeah. So the editor said, like, "You got to write this." We need new footage of people responding to this woman. They're like, "Who do we?" Uh, but and in their defense, some of these questions, like you know, Kevin McCarthy comes out um, on the fainting couch. You know, br- brings his own fainting couch, uh, which is mm-hmm. actually very hard to get up the stairs in the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, and has He's a press around all those skittles. Too. How offended they are! And the first question is, I mean, like, hey, minority leader, the president called woman a horse face. Did you guys not complain about that? And he, yep. he kind of hems and haws. Uh, so, like, as long as Don, look, look, the 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 time to say that this rhetoric is unacceptable in politics was was November 2016, and had mm-hmm. Trump lost, and a congresswoman said this, I think there'd be a different conversation. But it is just it it like beggars reason to get into this fight with while Trump is president, and the questions of two Republicans have taken that tone. I, I thought it was um. You know, th- there is such a thing as, as real outrage. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. Most of what yeah. we end up covering in politics is totally fake outrage meant to get, um, frankly, people like me, but hopefully I'm not dumb enough to fall for it, to people like me to, to write about it. Yeah, it's hard to spot real outrage in the wild these days. Uh, last, last question. What is prog rock and why should all the kids listening like it? That's right. So I, uh, in addition to everything I was just talking about, uh, I wrote, I've written a lot about music. I wrote a book came out in 2017 called The Show Never Ends about progressive rock. And it is, it is a history of this cul-de-sac rock went down where in the late 60s and then there were a couple other movements that sparked afterward you read about. Um, the kind of acid rock and mod evolved into extremely ornate uh, orchestral, multi-part song suites uh, that incorporated either classical forms or Asian instrumentation or electronics, just a a very high-minded uh, evolution of rock that was seen to be the future for like five years, which is actually a pretty <laughs> long time when you think of yeah. how fast trends burn out, and then was totally discarded by 1977. So um, that's what it's about. Uh, people should buy it. Uh, the newsletter is free. The book is not free, but you know, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna like if you're like me and I just like lost a pair of hundred dollar headphones yesterday. Um, uh, you know, what's eighteen dollars? You just spend it. Who cares? That's right. AirPods are the easiest things to lose in history. Uh, subscribe to the trailer. Buy the book. Pay for the Washington Post. It's incredible journalism. Dave Weigel, thank you for joining us. These guys, you people need to pay for his trips to Iowa so he can keep uh, telling us what the hell's happening there. I mean, if you buy the book on Amazon, you basically have so. Oh, cool. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Dave. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Have a good one. 
Thanks to Dave Weigel for joining us today. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you later in the week. Take a walk on the Weigel side, you know? <laughs> As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.